0: Hello everyone. Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shawna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back to This Must Be The Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Coming at you today with my best post-COVID hardcore bingo lady voice, so uh, excuse any of the noises I make. Um, So I used to have a bumper sticker that identified me as a tree-hugging dirt worshiper. My guest today is also a tree-hugger, literally and figuratively. Lloyd Alter is the design editor for Tree Hugger, the award-winning sustainability website. He teaches sustainable design at Ryerson School of Interior Design. He's been a keynote speaker at conferences across North America and abroad, and recently he's published a book called Living the 1.5-Degree Lifestyle. We've got a lot to talk about today. So very nice to see you again, Lloyd. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, so first of all, let's talk a little bit about Tree Hugger, because it's great. I really love the site. There's something for everybody, whether you're a nerd like me or a novice
1: in sustainability. So how long has it been around? Been around since 2004. It was started by a Canadian out of uh, out of Quebec who moved to New York and wanted to make sustainability sexy. At the time, it was all about products, about um, and it evolved. And I got hired to write part time in 2005 and full time in 2007 when it was purchased by Discovery Communications, the giant American company. And since then, it's been sort of sold around to, it was sold to a small company called the Mother Nature Network. And then two years ago, it was bought by Dot Dash, which recently bought another company called Meredith and is now the largest English language publishing company in the world. So we're part wow. of a massive, <laughs> massive conglomerate. <laughs> and it's quite a remarkable transition. That's amazing. I remember we talked a few years ago
0: um and well there was a point at which you weren't quite sure that you were it was going to to go, go on. I remember that.
1: Yes. And yeah. uh, it was bought by Dath Meredith, and I'll be frankly, I still have that question every week. <laughs> you never know in this in this media business. Um, after it bought um, after it bought Meredith, well, that's People Magazine and Better Homes and Gardens and all these giant oh, magazines, the big, big, big ones. Yeah. So we're now a tiny sort of small fry on this giant thing. So you never know. I take it day to day. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm writing books and that's why I'm teaching and trying to keep my hands in a pile of things.
0: Right. Well I know that uh the, the writing is great and you actually um did a review of the cold uh Canadian cold climate solar design manual from Solar Nova Scotia which was my first writing gig oh,
1: that's right
0: <laughs> yeah so we've got a, a a fairly long history but we've won a lot of parallel courses not not necessarily in tandem right um and so so uh sustainable design at Ryerson Is it, tell, tell me about that
1: well, what happened it's another thing that came out of tree hugger i was asked to be on a panel i guess almost a dozen years ago now and the head of ryerson of uh, the school at ryerson school at the school of interior design came up to me and said um We need someone to teach sustainable design. So I went over and I filled out the old applications and I started doing that, I think, 11 years ago. And then three Mm -hmm. years ago, they opened it up from just sustainable design to the whole department, to the creative school. So uh, I now have 100 students, and it's big, and half of them are interior designers, and the other half are everything from fashion to urban design to uh, photography to all different disciplines, which cool. has just been a wonderful change because they're really smart. And um, I don't know, I, I guess we're supposed to call it X University. You know, the Ryerson name was deemed unacceptable because he was involved in the uh, founding of the residential schools. And so everybody now calls it X University until they announce the name sometime in the next few months. Are there industrial design students in this course in your program as well? I think there are a few. I I think that department is in there, too. The creative school, as they call it, is a weird mix of courses. Like, for instance, I have no architects, architectures across, across Church Street. And they don't they're in a different faculty and don't talk to us. So I have oh, like everything. That about... interesting,
0: creative, <laughs> but not
1: really. But you, you are also an architect.
0: I, day, I was
1: that. a practicing architect, and then I became a real estate developer. And I hated the way everything was being built. And I decided we have to do better prefabricated stuff. So I went into prefabricated, uh, trying to sell prefab homes, which in Ontario, when everything is so far apart and there are such weird rules, was a difficult sell. And mm-hmm. so I started marketing it through before there were even blogs or websites that you updated every day. I started a proto blog in 2002 that became, suddenly I was the worldwide authority on prefab housing, and that's how I got into blogging. After nice. I sent some tips to Treehugger, they said, you know, write for us more, write for us more, come full time, and I realized I was a better writer than a prefab salesman. That's how I ended up here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> very nice cool cool so i would like to have a conversation about you with about you yes about you <laughs> no i mean with you about the 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 new upcoming hopefully taking off soon version of prefab which is prefab retrofits in terms of panelized re, uh, exterior retrofits for right. um, for existing houses this is that's my actually that's my baby i love that and i'm really working hard on Moving the, it forward.
1: The Dutch energy energy sprung idea coming yeah, to yeah. to Canada or North America. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, you know, and and definitely the same issues are coming up in terms of the roadblocks, which are the distribution of population. You can't have like the, the, the Dutch have a, a centralized manufacturing program. Right. And a lot of cookie cutter houses.
1: Well, so, yes, that's that I think is the biggest problem that they have a lot of cookie cutter houses that are fairly simple forms. They're fairly small. And a lot of them are townhouses. And when mm-hmm. you come to North America, you know, every builder has gables and bumps and jogs. And, you know, just I used to call it the turkey style, gobble, gobble, gable, gable, gable. You know, there's so many <laughs> bumps and jogs. You know, I just think, oh, my God, you know, the amount of surface area on every house here is just going to make energy a really really hard yeah I think there's, there's definitely some
0: archetypes that we could really go after I don't think it's ever going to be a universal um, a universal solution you know those gingerbreaded Victorian houses with towers and bumps and no. not you know covered verandas and stuff but just think of those millions of 1960s 1970s bungalows those lovely little shoeboxes
1: Have you ever seen what Harold Orr did with the chainsaw retrofits? Yes. Where basically they just sawed everything that hung out over, and they just wrapped everything in new windows and styrofoam in the sixties. It's essentially the same concept.
0: Yeah. Yep. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. And it's really cool, you know, when we think about the Canadians who have inspired worldwide. Um, movements like like energy sprung that whole concept we you know, Harold Orr did it with the chainsaw retrofit. Harold and a few other folks were involved with the Saskatchewan Conservation House. Yes, which which was, was
1: with Dumont, which was the model when everybody else was doing mass and glass and solar and that. It's such a wonderful story that the Saskatchewan government said, we want a solar house. And he and his partner said, well, we're in Saskatchewan, there's no sun. We have a better idea. And they just, Built what was essentially the first passive house. They invented yeah. the HRV all out of polyethylene sheets. It was brilliant.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I think for, I, I'm, one of my goals is that we don't we we don't lose that uh, that history. That we always know the context that we come from in terms of what we're doing in terms of sustainability and moving forward with these crazy ass ideas that you know we can you know we always need to keep those in mind that we have this you know there's the, the crazy connect skiers but there's also the crazy connect building science folks right
1: Right. But in response to the question of energy, uh, energy, sprung, he, he, energy sprung here, I'd like to propose another thing that Harold Orr, Orr said in 2013, when he was interviewed for an article in Eco Home Magazine, I'll send you a link, where he mm-hmm. talked about, you know, where is the heat loss? And he said, we've got to go after the big chunks. And mm-hmm. what he said, you know, if you sit there worrying about wrapping your house in styrofoam or changing all the windows and that, he said, you know, 30% of your heat loss is through leaking leakage mm-hmm. as we know right? from, from all of our blower test stuff. He said 30% of it's through the basement and yeah. maybe a huge portion of it is through the attic. So what he was saying there, and I call it the Pareto principle approach you know that the, the 80% is easy. It's the last 20% that kills mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And if we're in an era where we're worried about carbon and not energy, which we are, then doesn't it make a lot more sense for those millions of 60s houses that we have to do an 80% where we seal and we fix the basement and we put in the attic where we can and make up the difference with an air source heat pump that runs on clean power? hmm then I think we could do tens of thousands of houses relatively cheaply and have them zero, zero emissions, at least in the provinces like Quebec and Ontario, where they're not all burning coal for their power. And hopefully in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they won't be soon. Yeah. <laughs> but but the point is, is to energy sprung them, to get them down to passive levels is so hard. But to do what I call the 80% rule, to get them down 80%, mm-hmm. we can do for a fraction of the cost. Mm-hmm. And then you give them a heat pump for the difference in your set. So yeah. – think about that. And that's again, Harold Orr, after doing the chainsaw, he said, yes, we could do that. But this might be a better idea if you've got to do zillions of hazards.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, we're always looking at, uh, and, and that's, you know, the idea of, of of bouncing ideas and throwing them around and saying, well, here's one that's working somewhere else, but do we have the infrastructure to do that? And this is the right way to do it. You know, it's all about what's going to disrupt the industry and what's going to change things and what's going to move us forward at the pace that we need to be moving forward in terms of these kind of retrofits. And I definitely, my, my bent is that when we're talking about these kind of things, we don't look at all the houses. If we're going to, um, do an energy-sprung-like renovation to the exterior of a house. We only do it when that house is up for residing. Right. Right. That's when it makes sense because it's like a 15 or 20 percent, not even maybe 10 to 15 percent increase in the cost of doing that um, that deferred maintenance piece. Right. To put insulation underneath it. Right, so we're not going to go after all of those houses that way, but that's, you know, how, to, and so adding that into your, uh, to, to Harold's idea of pushing out the basement or, you know, improving basement, reducing air leakage, going after the, uh, the heat pumps. There are lots of solutions. There's never going to be a single silver bullet. So yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, and a nice segue from your thought about we're in a place where we need to look at carbon reductions versus energy reductions.
1: We've really had, been talking about energy since 1974. And the reason we were talking about energy wasn't because of climate. It was because of the Arab-Israeli war and the Arabs cutting off the oil supply. So suddenly we were talking about energy and reducing our energy consumption. And we're still talking about energy in a political sense. Even today, and you look at what's happening in Russia as we speak, uh, where suddenly gas prices and uh, Europe are probably doubling today because the Germans announced, well, we're never going to open that Nord Stream 2 gas pipe. So suddenly nobody's gotten any gas there. And we've got to realize that, you know, we're never going to solve these problems if we don't reduce consumption, of, uh, consumption. There's this whole thing in the States now, this thing, uh, electrify everything. That, you know, they say you can have the same house, you can have the same car, you can have everything the same as it is. All we have to do is cover your roof with solar panels, hook you up to uh, clean, green power, and life can go on the way it is. And I just did a calculation I spent on a post that I just had published this morning, even, where I spent last week trying to do, well, how much new clean energy do we have? How do we need? And if you live in Quebec, you have no problem at all because they've got mm-hmm. more electricity than they can use. They could just have put everybody into electric cars and they'd be sat in Quebec. Uh, not so much in Ontario because we don't have as much spare electricity as Quebec. But the electrical uh, electrify everything idea totally falls down in places that have dirty electricity. We still I'm putting my to, hand up now. Yes, we still <laughs> have to reduce energy consumption wherever we are, even in Quebec, because we need, if they're not using the electricity, they should be exporting it to places that can like where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is the silly thing. Uh, sure it would be easy for them to do it. Electric cars, when I was doing the math, are such an interesting thing. When you look at the Sankey graph of where energy goes, petroleum going to electric cars is huge. It's the biggest single source of carbon emissions in the United States and in Canada. But when you- Sorry, so
0: can, you, can you go, so petroleum related to electric cars?
1: No, petroleum going into gasoline cars is the okay, biggest okay. source of biggest source of carbon. Right, and but cars are only fifteen percent efficient. The rest of it all goes up the chimney, up, up the mm. exhaust pipe, in heat, yeah. and in heat from the engine. Whereas electric cars are ninety percent efficient. So you actually need far, far less energy when you look at the whole energy picture to run electric cars and. Because they're batteries, you know, what matters in electricity is the peak load, not the average load. So you can say you've got to charge your car at night and we're, or we're going to charge you so much money you won't be able to afford it to do it in the daytime and have them charge at peak load when the power's there. So what you've got is it won't take that much more electricity to convert all the cars. To, from gas to electricity mm-hmm. because they're so much more efficient. What the problem is, is making them. Nobody ever thinks about embodied carbon in any of our discussions about buildings and about anything else. And embodied carbon, I have what I've called the ironclad rule of carbon, which is as buildings approach, get more efficient, then embodied carbon becomes, approaches 100% of the carbon emissions. Like if yes. you went and built a passive house, um, building, they are so efficient that when you total it up, embodied carbon dominates it like mad. And Chris Magwood's new report that's coming out is showing this. He's been saying embodied carbon is the elephant in the room for a decade, and people mm-hmm. are just beginning to believe them. And nobody's regulating it yet, but the carbon, uh, to make an F-150 electric truck is 40 tons of carbon and if you look at how much carbon we should each be emitting in our lifetimes to stay under one to stay under 1.5 degree of warming that's 40 tons of carbon in fact you know one of those electric SUVs eats up a lifetime budget of carbon so we can't do that
0: right and that it also begs the question of is the car the mode of transportation that we need because i just saw on my twitter feed yesterday somebody um in this realm uh who said you know i'm coming down the sea to sky highway and the uh you know the the signs that show how long away it's going to get to go over the bridges in vancouver i saw that tweet it's a 2 hour wait to get from somewhere in between you know Horseshoe Bay and West Vancouver to get to the lion across the Lionsgate bridge. So Vancouver has a preponderance of like every second car is a Tesla.
1: Right.
0: It's crazy, but there's still
1: hundreds of thousands
0: of cars. So they still kill people.
1: They still clog the roads. They still need parking spots and there are still 20 to 40 tons of embodied carbon. And the, the thing is is that the other side, I no longer talk about trans, uh, transportation emissions as being separate from building emissions uh, mm-hmm. where people you look at all the graphs and you see the pie this is buildings this is transportation but right. what we but draw- if the buildings
0: are causing transportation. There's your problem right there.
1: Exactly. They're two sides of the same coin. Our Chair Walker said, you know, uh, transportation and land use are the same thing in two spoken in two different languages. What we mm-hmm. build determines how we get around. How we get around determines what we build. I live in what was a 1913 vintage streetcar suburb right in the middle of toronto the streetcar went in and 20 years later the whole thing was built out with houses on narrow lots where you could walk to the streetcar and then Mm -hmm. get to work and when i decided to write my book living the 1.5 degree lifestyle and i said okay i'm never driving for this whole year i'm riding my e-bike which I had just bought, I didn't have any problem doing it because I can walk to the liquor store. I can walk to three different big grocery stores. I I, I can walk up to all the little fancy shops on St. Clair Avenue. I was really fortunate because of where I chose to live. If you live in suburban Calgary and you want to live a 1.5 degree lifestyle and your electricity is from coal and you have to drive just to get a liter of milk, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be impossible. So we don't only have to change our vehicles, we have to change our planning. It all has to go together. We have to change our building codes to allow small buildings with single stairs that you can build like they all do in Europe, where they'll come into a little lot and they'll build a five-story building with five units on top of each other where we would build have to build a single family house. Um They, you know, we have to allow low carbon building, low carbon materials like wood right now in most of Canada, you can build them up to six stories. And that's, I think, as far as we have to go.
0: Well, that and that that would tie back back into the pattern language with what's a human scale.
1: So that makes
0: complete sense. We're not we're not eagles.
1: Well, I, I, um, I wrote a thing I, um, years ago in The Guardian, an article that I still point to where I call the, the Goldilocks density. You know, it's just right. It's not too mm-hmm. low mm-hmm. that you can't support a store around the corner, uh, but it's not so high that you lose touch with everything and, uh, you know, can't take the stairways when the power goes out and where you can't build a lightweight frame construction. You know, as soon mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. start having to go into cross laminated timber because you don't want to build. concrete and steel you're using five times as much wood for the same square foot of real estate so and i know that everybody says that clt is green and sustainable and that but you know the less of it you use the better whatever material it is
0: oh is in the greenest building is the one that's already standing
1: exactly
0: so we need to and that's where my focus on on retrofits it i just keep coming back to it coming back to it coming back to it is that, uh, that that's where we need to go. Is, is you know I mean we 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 have issues with the um you know the problems like me. I'm living in outside of Halifax. I cannot live without a vehicle. Right. And so there's issues there with all this the housing stock that's in suburban areas like this. But shifting how we do planning from now on, I have there's there would easily be a place where we could actually you know, where I am, build out slightly d- bigger densities and actually have what used to be here, which was a village. Right.
1: And a village, you could walk downtown and you could get your milk and you could get your eggs and you could mm-hmm. order from uh, Eaton's when you needed something else, which is like the, the, those days of Amazon before Amazon. <laughs> and um, it's a system that worked and that we've, the village, you got, you dealt with your staples and Occasionally, you went to the big city for whatever. There was often rail too. I mean, mm-hmm. in, Tor- in Ontario, there was an electric railway network that, for the first thirty years of the twentieth uh, century, you know, built out after they built Niagara Falls. They didn't have anywhere to get the electric- to use the electricity. They had to sell the electricity, so they gave it away to the electric railways that were all over southern Ontario. Huh. And then the car came in, and they were all bankrupt in no time. I uh,
0: saw probably last month, so maybe the, so we're in February now. So January, I saw a very interesting set of maps that showed an earlier map in the early 20th century that showed all the rail lines. In it was it was Eastern Canada, so it included it included Nova Scotia and and Atlantic Canada, and it was stunning the difference between that and what's here now. So we actually don't have a there's no rail line. We have a lovely rails to trails. Um, way to ride your bike or take your ATV or your horse yeah. or your feet um from one end of the province to the other but there's no there's no one way that connects us and we've lost a lot of buses and of course in Ontario they lost when Greyhound stopped servicing a lot of those communities they lost the main contact point for anybody who didn't have a vehicle
1: It's funny because going back to the 60s, my father was a pioneer in shipping container transportation, and he developed a concept called the land bridge where, you know, instead of going through the Panama Canal, they would have shipping containers go from Halifax to Vancouver. And this would be a major way of moving goods. And every time a rail line died, he said, we're going to regret this someday. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I, every time a rail to trail thing was proposed, I would say, because of what I learned from my dad, no, we shouldn't be doing this. We need these tracks. And people would look at me like I was crazy. You know, we Mm -hmm. have transport trucks. We have cars now. Nobody's going to be going back to rails. And what we lost was all of the stuff that was built at such great expense with so much labor that, you know, you can carry A hundred times as much stuff per per liter of fuel on a train as you can on a truck. And with a hundred times fewer people actually doing it because and, you know, look at the mess we're in with with trucking right now. Mm -hmm. And. we just let the system go to hell. The other thing my father said, we should never be sharing the roads with with trucks and cars on the same roads. It's fundamentally different, dangerous, the difference in scale. If people want to go where they want to go, let them go where they want to go, but put all the transport of goods on rail. It uh, makes complete
0: sense to have those two things separated. Yeah. On top of all of that, there is nothing more magical than being on a train. I, I adore agree. trains.
1: <laughs> But we have to fix them. I have been mm. on trains in, <coughs> in China that go 350 kilometers an hour, and the joke that you do is you take a coin, and you stand it in the windowsill, and the coin stands up because the trains are so smooth and so mm. fast. Right. Right. And you're zinging along. And then the last time I was on a train, it was just before the shutdown, I was at a wood conference in Quebec City at the end of 2019. And I took the train back. And I tell you what, my teeth were shaking out going across Ontario, (laughs) the rails are so bad, and the train is shaking so much, and it's going under 100 kilometers an hour. So the foolishness, the misguidedness that we have in this country that we just let our rail network go to pot and we don't properly maintain the rail network we have so that they can go at a reasonable speed is one of our great national scandals we were Mm -hmm. built. This country was built by the railway, by building railways and we just threw that 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 legacy away. That was the whole way that white folks opened it up. Exactly. On the backs of
0: Non-white folks.
1: Yes. <laughs> but,
0: Absolutely.
1: But, uh, we'll steal yeah. the native people's land and then we'll have it all built by Chinese almost slaves. And that's how we got the, the real will be the great white hope. Here you yeah.
0: go. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about your book because the 1.5 degree lifestyle, where are we going to go with that? Give me some examples about what, what you mean in terms of what people could do that would bring them towards that.
1: Okay, first of all, let me explain where the lifestyle comes from. There was a Finnish university study done in about two thousand and eighteen that looked at the what the ipcc determined you know we have to reduce all our carbon by this much every year to keep under one point five degrees of heating, and so they're estimating by twenty thirty that's got to be about forty five percent fifty percent less carbon than we're emitting. Now, well, actually, when they wrote it in 2018, now it's considered Mm -hmm. we have to go more. Um, And so that gave us a carbon footprint of where we have to be in 2030. And they divided that up among the entire global population. And it came out to an average of 2.5 tons of carbon per year emissions average across the world. Now, if you look at our carbon distribution right now, about half the world lives with less emissions than 2.5 tons and they're in Africa and they're in Asia and they're poor and they're suffering from energy poverty. They don't have enough energy consumption to actually live a proper life to keep warm and eat and and cook their food. And that's why they're picking up sticks and cooking on uh, cooking like on wood flames. the rest of the world, particularly the richest 10% of the world, which includes all of us who are watching this probably, you know, the average Canadian has lifestyle emissions, things that they control themselves. What, how do I live? How do I drive? What do I buy? Of about 14 and a half tons per year. The 1% who fly all the time, probably, you know, go to vacations everywhere, take a week off in St. Farts, go here, go there, probably are up at 30 and 50 and 60 tons a person. So what I wanted to do was to see, could I live on 2.5 tons of carbon per year? Because that's the 1.5 degree lifestyle. I learned about it from a woman in London who was trying to do a 2050 one-ton lifestyle and said, that's impossible. I mean, that's just like background noise in my life. I couldn't possibly do that, but maybe 2.5 tons. So what did I have to do? When I, in the end, I was very lucky. A couple of things. One, I lived, as I said, in a streetcar suburb. I could shop without driving. I could get on my bike and go everywhere downtown. I'm close enough. I could I could live without a car. That was the biggest chunk of carbon being mm-hmm. lost. I had been fortunate that I had duplexed my house. It was too big for my wife and I when the kids grew up, and so. I wanted to sell and she didn't, so I split it to where we're just living in the ground floor and what I will call the lower level. Uh, you can you can see me and you can see the stairs up behind mm-hmm. me uh, from the renovation. And, and, a, in- and a lovely
0: chunk of library, I see. <laughs> yes.
1: And so, you know, because you're looking at it per capita by suddenly going from two people in the house to five and having half the area, I dropped my carbon footprint of how I live significantly. Uh, when you look at food, everyone says, oh, you've really got to go vegetarian or vegan to really lower your carbon footprint, which is really hard for a lot of people, including mm-hmm. me. But mm-hmm. when you actually look at the district, if you look at food from a carbon point of view, red meat is huge. Red meat is like way off the scale because they're ruminants who who uh, fart in methane gas and. They last a long time and they take a lot of grain to feed. And so cows and sheep are a huge problem because they're ruminants. Mm -hmm. But if you look at other foods, they're much lower, like uh, chicken and pork, actually. Uh, You can cut your carbon footprint in half in terms of food just by cutting out red meat, lamb, and a lot of dairy. What you (laughs) find... um, Certain things are ridiculous. Like when you look at the scale put out by the English Our World and Data, you know, tomatoes are worse than chicken and fish. I said, what? Tomatoes? This is why being a vegetarian uh, doesn't necessarily make sense because tomatoes in most parts of the cold climates are, are grown in hothouses for most yes. of the year.
0: seasonal. You Very only get seasonal. real yeah.
1: tomatoes if in August. And the rest of the time, they're in hothouses, which are fired by natural gas. Mm-hmm. And, either, and if they're the, too cold for the hothouses, then they're trucked in from Mexico and California. So being a vet, even being a vegan depends on, you know, where is your vegetable coming from?
0: Well, and also a heavy reliance on, on things like coconut oil and avocados for fats. And, and you know, those are not Canadian-grown foods. no. No. So mm -hmm.
1: it's funny when my um, when my wife was a food writer back when we were owned by Discovery and uh, which we lived as an experiment, a. A local diet, a 19th century Ontario diet, which would have been very much like a 19th century Nova Scotia diet, you know, a bunch of Scots and Englishmen coming here in the winter. So they're eating potatoes and root vegetables and lots of meat and cabbage and lots of meat because the meat is alive in the winter. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. did this and we had parsnip and turnip and more parsnip and more turnip and but Because we are now been exposed to Indian cooking and Chinese cooking and other kinds of cuisine that don't have as much meat, which goodness knows no Scot would ever touch and no Englishman would ever touch back in the 19th century, unless they'd just done their service in India, we had a very varied, interesting diet. And when I went to do the 1.5 degree lifestyle and was cutting out red meat and reducing all meat consumption as much as possible, we ate a lot more tofu, a lot more Indian food, and we had a lovely time. It was Mm -hmm. not like you ever felt you were giving anything up. I also calculated it all on a giant spreadsheet, which I can share with you. So if you were bad one day, It wasn't like, oh, you've blown everything. Your life is ruined because you're no longer a vegan or whatever. Um, You just amortize it over the spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a cabin two and a half hours north of Toronto that I've had for a long time. I wouldn't buy if I knew what I knew now that you shouldn't have evil second homes. But I have my evil second home. (laughs) What we did courtesy of the internet being wonderful, is we drove up once in June and drove back in September. And so I amortized that 250 kilometers over the whole summer, it's not so terrible. You can still mm-hmm. live a nice life and do these things that you want to do. You just can't do them every weekend.
0: Right. So right.
1: I have a very large garden here and um,
0: I have focused on things that we really love to eat. So um, I haven't eat, I haven't purchased garlic for two decades oh I least. haven't I haven't I'm not so good at growing onions I have hit and miss years but most years we end up with as many tomatoes as we possibly need because I grow them here but the biggest thing that I've done for our household and this is my goal is that we can actually get I could grow 70% of our food value here oh. is I started growing dry beans right so That's I so have fun. you know so I can't grow – I don't have enough space to grow things like chickpeas or lentils. They take a lot of, of real estate. Right. Um, but dry beans of all sorts. I, I've i got uh, about – I think I've got maybe 15 varieties now. Um, and we end up with excess at the end of the year. But that's – you know, there are things – and I'm in a position that – so I'm – i Personally, and I haven't done any calculations on this, but my goal is that I can think about the fact that I work from home. My partner works from home. We grow our food here. We have two vehicles. We own. We haven't. Well, this is an anomaly this month. But literally, we've we've used the car once in the month. But COVID has been our. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have COVID every year so that I can balance my carbon budget. But certainly. Being in a position where if you're you you're reliant on a vehicle, there are other things you can do to maybe shift that balance a little bit in terms of the carbon
1: loading. System. I I have to admit that writing my book was a lot easier during a year of pandemic when you couldn't go anywhere and I couldn't get in a plane. And um, I also work from home, which of course makes this all easier. Then there's the other thing about consumerism. You know, I'm I my one big obsession, I guess, is my love of owning every new Apple product. And so yeah. I've got – Even if me you both. Know, if you could see here I've got my MacBook that I'm talking to you on and my iPad and I have my phone and my watch and my uh, my AirPods. And it's remarkable when you start looking at these things. You have to look at everything through the uh, the lens of embodied carbon in that my iPhone 11 – you know, it doesn't weigh very much. It uses no operating energy to speak of because Apple wants to make them as efficient as possible to go all day in a battery. So they're incredibly efficient. But according to Apple's own numbers, there's 85 kilograms of embodied carbon in making the thing. And- oh, When I totaled up, because Apple is one of the few companies that reveals all of this, and when I totaled up the carbon footprint of all of my Apple products and divided it by their estimated lifespan for the life cycle emissions, um, what I found that my Apple products were the single biggest component of my carbon footprint after my stupid gas furnace, because I have a gas furnace that I wish I didn't. I wish I had a heat pump, but I'm, I've got the gas furnace. Really, they were the hmm. second biggest thing in my footprint. And what the answer is there is that we all have to learn, don't say you can't uh, buy anything new. But, you know, my iPad Pro that I lo- bought in um, 2012 before I bought such an expensive machine, I spoke to a guy. I said, what do I do? What do you do? He says, I buy the new one every time. Every t- I get the Apple Care program and I use it for three years and buy a new one because it's your work tool. I used that thing for six years. It kept mm-hmm. going and going and going. Mm-hmm. It's still going. I just want, broke down and wanted something new. Yeah, so, I have another one that I used from 2012. Yeah. Yeah. So the and the thing is, is that every year you keep something going longer, you're spreading those life cycle emissions. They're going down every year. Mm -hmm. If I keep this uh, M1 MacBook Pro that I'm speaking to you on, which I know is going to run be good for eight years, if I keep it eight years, then you know that's made a huge difference. That's how we have to think about everything. The thing Mm -hmm. I learned, this is why I became so in love with the Passive House movement. Uh, because when you start looking through the lens of things like that, for instance, when you look at a a low-energy lifestyle, you don't just think of a building that way. You think of everything that way. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. do I buy a car that's low-energy, or do I try not to have a car? When I buy a product, do I look at low-energy? It becomes a mode of thinking, that I yeah. think that people in this business have that they look at everything in terms of, okay, what are the kilowatt hours of this? Even if you're not consciously doing the math, I think subconsciously you do. I bet yeah. you do. Every time you order. Oh, anything, I do yeah. every
0: single time I have. And, and, you know, I want to, there's a part of me that I was very broke for a very long time. Um, so purchasing something was a big hurdle throwing something away is an even bigger hurdle for me. Right. So, so there's an element of, um, you know, of privilege there too. When people say, oh, just buy one every three years when the new one comes out and just use your, 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 uh, you know, until the Apple care goes away or whatever, or, you know, people, yeah, leasing that's what vehicles. you
1: Yeah.
0: same with people who lease, you know, lease a vehicle for a year. And then when the year's up, you just, you know, whatever, I'll get a new one.
1: Or buy every new iPhone.
0: Right, or buy every new iPhone. It's like, the, I've never been able to afford to do that. I've never been in a position where I could afford to do that. I'm in a better position now, but every single, I agonize over everything that
1: comes into this house. And, you know, frugal green living, as I call it, in which you come out in the book, you know, it doesn't mean you're starving or suffering. You're just Mm-mm. thinking about your purchases carefully, thinking about waste. You know, I look at everything that comes in plastic, you know, that plastic is mm-hmm. weighed of petrochemical, and it's got so many grams of carbon in it. But it also, we just don't want to waste, you don't want to throw things out, you develop a mindset about it. Yeah. And we all have to develop this low consumption, uh, zero waste idea, not just because it's all carbon, But it's also frugal. You know, living a low-carbon lifestyle is a healthier lifestyle because you uh, try to walk more and drive less. You don't – I. you know, I used to love nothing more than getting in my car in the winter and driving two hours up north to get electrically winched up a hill to ski down (laughs) artificial snow and then drive two hours home again. And (laughs) – yeah, it's, every step of the way is, is high consumption. Yep. And uh oh, goodness. three years ago, I went back to what I did before I ever learned to snowboard, which is cross-country ski. And I strapped them to my electric bike, and I went to high, I went to Cedarville Park, the park, and I cross-country skied. And, you know, it's better exercise, it's cheaper, it's fun, and you're not spending all that time in the car. And I honestly,
0: or, or standing in line waiting, yeah. I mean, that was, for me, I grew up in Vancouver, um, I never, I, well, I shouldn't say never, I took some downhill lessons, and I hated standing in line, I hated getting winched up the hill, I hated a tow rope, because I had really weeny, you know, skinny little kid arms that yarded out, they got yarded out of the sockets, but as soon as I strapped on a pair of uh, of cross-country skis, I was like, oh, well, I'm free, see y'all. <laughs> I'm going to go enjoy the day. It's not going to be noisy. It's not going to be stinky. You know, it it was just a, I mean, I think it's just a different, there is a, there's a, I think underneath a lot of this stuff that where people are attracted to things is, is a mindset or a personality type. I don't want to use that particular word, but you know, what you're attracted to can often be what, what drives your, and influences the decisions you make about how your life works.
1: Oh yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's a, you know, it's the group you hang out with. It's, it's a class thing. When I was doing all of that uh, skiing and then snowboarding, I was in the nineties, a real estate developer, first with a big real estate company, and then with my own. And when you were a real estate developer, you just, spent money like it was water and you just did these things as if they were second nature even if every penny was borrowed and you know because that's what they did and I wanted to hang out with real estate developers Uh, but
0: but, and and also just in that whole business mindset the business model is is all leveraged money anyway yes so
1: I that's how we that's how I lived Mm -hmm. and that's how I did it until I had a falling out with my partners and was no longer a real estate developer and um my life changed rather radically and as did my income for a couple of years so that's when I basically started thinking about these things. And that's when I started thinking about sustainability and mm. started this transformation in me. And, you know, again, when we did those years, almost eight years ago, where we were going to eat the 19th century di- diet, we didn't, as soon as that was over saying, okay, we're going back to buying pineapples and going back to buying everything that we don't grow in Ontario. It actually became a habit. It actually mm-hmm. became part of our culture. I've still I still don't think we've ever had a pineapple in winter. Or I can't remember having one period because they don't grow them here. Um, your life changes. My uh, Ke- Kelly does the cooking and the shopping. My wife you know, just basically, I, if it if it grows here we only get it in season. So we only mm-hmm. buy tomatoes in season. And then she cans them like mad and does all of this and takes the crab apples off the crab apple tree in the street and makes crab apple jelly. And it just became habit.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and there's also a skill set there that I yes. think is, is, is missing for a lot of people. So I, because I grow a lot of food, I, I do a lot of canning. And I teach a lot of people as they come to my house, you know, what are you going to do this weekend? I'm going to, I'm going to be canning. Oh, you know, if you're going to come for a visit, you're going to come and help me because this is, so it's a very different perception of, of what's fun to do.
1: Right. And then we have to carry this thought about sort of this thing that I call frugal, frugal grain living also into the sort of, design, let's get back into what we're specialists in, which is living, housing. And, you know, you've got to think about the one of the main points in the book, the key words, is we have to, in a lot of ways, think less about efficiency and more about sufficiency. And mm-hmm. sufficiency is looking at the question of how much do we really need? Do I need more clothing and more shoes, or are these enough shoes? Do I need this room and that room and 2,000 square feet of space? When we know embodied carbon and materials and everything else matters, and the more space you have, the more it's going to cost to heat and cool. So what is sufficient? What is enough? And Mm -hmm. to be sufficient in a house, for instance, you've got to design things really well. You know, It takes more space, more hallways, more of everything when you design badly. But uh, mm-hmm. if you like the few years ago, there was Sarah Susenka on the not so big house. And her whole theory was you can make a house 30% smaller. It's not going to cost 30% less because you've got to make it better and use better materials and build it better. But, you, you know, you've got to look at what's enough. How mm-hmm. much room do you need? How big does everything have to be? And, you know, there's a sufficiency is a really important thing, because you see what happened, you know, as cars became more efficient, they grew into trucks, people wouldn't, you know, yeah,
0: same as with our 2000 houses became more efficient. Well, now you can have twice as much house,
1: twice as much
0: house, it's going to cost you half as much to run this house so therefore you can double
1: which everybody has been doing and it got bigger uh led bulbs are my favorite one i've got pictures of you know houses where there are 100 bulbs across the ceiling uh the tvs are now six feet, six two meters across because leds drove down the operating cost of these things so much that people just you know buy 10 times as much of them uh and they really are. I mean, you know, when you're just changing your bulbs, it's one thing. But if you look at new houses, you'll find you've got lighting for this and lighting for that, and lighting mm-hmm. here and lighting there <laughs> in ways we never used to. And they're, of course, covering buildings with them uh, and doing decorative LED lighting. If you look at a picture of Shanghai, you know, it's just every building is just it glowing.
0: Like a, it looks like a Christmas tree. It just yeah.
1: looks like a Christmas and tree.
0: And I see a lot of people are working on doing that into uh, bringing LED lights into landscaping as well.
1: Oh, God, yes. In, and they're, uh, they're integrating them into carpets. They're integrating them into wallpaper, I've even seen. Um, wow. So, you know, we have to, this is why there's an Australian thinker, thinker, Samuel Alexander, who said that without sufficiency, efficiency is lost. That basically, you have to think first about how much do you need? And this goes right down, you know, through my book, through everything, goes right down to how we eat. If you look at portion sizes over the last 15 <laughs> years in restaurants and what people put on tables and that, uh, everything is like double what it used to be. And food waste is is up incredibly. If you actually, if we actually all served 1960 size portions, we'd be eating Thirty percent less food than we are, we'd be wasting thirty less percent less food than we are, and we'd all have thirty pounds less stuff on us than we do. But <laughs> yeah, this it's, is this, it's a
0: it's a hard. I mean, when you start to to un, unravel it, there it's you know onion like in its layers of upon layers upon layers. Once you start to peel things back, we really it comes down to what are you. How thoughtful are you about what you're doing Right. and where you are? So are you going to write another book?
1: I am. Um, and what it's about is actually a completely different subject. I'm telling you this, and I don't have a deal yet, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. And that is that in the United States, I don't know the exact number in Canada, 40,000 people die every year because they fall. And they mainly hit their heads or something gets injured. That's more people than die in cars. That's more people who die in guns. It's huge. The number of people who are injured and like their lives are ruined Mm -hmm. because Because of this, including, including my mother who fell on a stairway in a building in Toronto, coming out of a fancy lunch. And the thing is, nobody, they all think about it, well, it's an accident. And, you know, it's not an accident. Mm-hmm. It's a bad design. Every bathtub that you see today, they love these freestanding bathtubs against the wall with these thin walls. You can't get into one of these things without killing yourself, and yet these are the fashion. And, you know, an American is killed every day just slipping in the bathroom, and none of them have grabbed bars, and they all have slippy, slippery surfaces, surfaces, and they all have these death traps bathtub designs and roads. You know, people are in America and and in Toronto, we're responsible for shoveling our own sidewalks. The cars get all the streets cleaned by the city, but the sidewalks are death traps and people are falling all the time. And so I wanted to write a book that actually looked, this is a design problem that we are designing everything without any Conscious thinking about anything, but how does it look? We design yeah. our bathrooms, our death traps, our toilets, our death traps, our kitchens, the counters are all the wrong heights, our sidewalks, our cars. We're looking at, you know, everything we're doing. So, designing. An based, it's all
0: based, it's based on an able-bodied thought process, too. Yes. Yeah? So, so my everybody cousin...
1: is 20 years old and healthy, and they can see everything in front of them. Right. And they're yeah, not... My
0: cousin... My cousin had, uh, who died a few years ago, had a cerebral palsy and was in a wheelchair. And um, and the biggest uh, takeaway I had from that growing up was him saying to me, when I was very very young, oh, well, you know, you're only able bodied for now. Yes. You don't know when you're not going to be able bodied. Right. And it was a big it was a big jolt for me to you know and and has fo- followed me through my whole life so. I will look forward to that book too. That's great, excellent. So I got two two quick questions for you, and then we got to wrap it up. What's your all-time favorite nerdy, delightful thing about building science?
1: I was completely after being an architect for all those years and doing renovations, and you put in insulation, and you say, "I got to change the windows," and I have to do this. The thing that just blew me away and changed every way I think about buildings was air leakage, this Mm. simple thing that nobody thinks about. And what it did, and this is after I learned about Passive House, you know, the impact that the invention of the blower door had. It changes everything, everything I was taught in school, everything that I ever knew. And if you still talk to 90% of architects and builders out there, they still don't bloody well know this yet, is that the single biggest thing we have to deal with is air leakage. And that affects how you design the building. It affects how you do everything in the building to minimize this. And this was the thing because it was just a revolution in how you think about building. Excellent. And is that nerdy I would agree. Enough?
0: That is absolutely nerdy. That is the, my, my, that's actually my, my perfect nerd piece. <laughs> so second, part, second question. What building science BS? drives you crazy. Probably just the same
1: thing. <laughs> no, no, no. What it is, is that this, it's, there's this thing that was done. Uh, look, you'll ha- you should look it up. It's for the Minnesota Electrical Department, the Pyramid of Efficiency. And what it does is this pyramid and it says, you know, what are the things that give you bang for your buck? And what are the things that don't? What are the things that are uh, important and what aren't? And absolutely, the least important and effective thing that you can do is change your windows. And yet, if you look at the Pellis salesman, and if you look at every contractor on the street, and you say, I want to fix my house, what do I do? Oh, we're going to sell you new windows. Well, yes, windows are important, but they're expensive, expensive, expensive. And there are so many other things. Oh, and second on the list was putting solar panels in your roof. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to do the simple thing. They all, there's a those thing. Those are sexy. Those, those are oh, very it's sexy. What, it's what I, there was a study done a few years ago. It's the, the Prius effect. It's what's called conspicuous consumption. I mean, there mm-hmm. no, it's uh-huh. not conspicuous consumption is what it used to be. What this is, is conspicuous conservation. That's what Mm -hmm. they call it. Mm -hmm. There were families that would say, well, I want the solar panels put on this side of the house. And the installer would say, but they won't get any sun. That's the wrong side. They should be on the other side. They'd say, oh, but nobody can see them. And, you know, I think what kind of people would actually say this? But they do. That, you know, they want what is conspicuous. This is what makes it so hard to sell caulk and air sealing that we Mm -hmm. know is so important because they think, well, what can I show anyone? I mean it's I think the biggest problem with passive house next to its stupid name is the fact that you can't see the You can't see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. inconspicuous yeah. conservation. Yeah. So yeah, this is what we have to get people to understand. I agree. Let's go. See you. Okay.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Lloyd. This has been fantastic. I really appreciated the chat. And that's it for our episode today. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.